we are really working to try to get policymakers to recognize financial planning as a profession. So like doctors and lawyers and teachers, and I very much believe that financial planning is every bit as valuable as medicine or law is in our lives. Maybe more so because it really impacts us throughout our entire life. You're listening to Your Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. In the world of financial regulation, it's easy for the voices of fiduciary financial planners to get drowned out. Skip Schweiss from TD Ameritrade is our guest today, and one of his many jobs is to raise awareness about the fiduciary movement both in Washington and in our public communication with consumers. Straight ahead, we've got an episode full of valuable information from Skip, TD Ameritrade's Director of Advisor Advocacy. When you think about the work of financial planners, do you think of words like passion, purpose, and impact? If not, then something just isn't right. I'm Kate Healy, Managing Director of Generation Next at TD Ameritrade, and we believe that empowering people to live their best lives is a noble calling. The independent REAs who work with us use their passion to help transform client lives, communities, and their own futures. Want to learn more about how we can support you in helping your clients reach their financial goals? Find out more at tdainstitutional.com. Thank you for joining us today. We're excited to have you on the podcast with us. So Skip, what is your role at uh, TD Ameritrade? Well, I have a fun job because I have two roles at TD Ameritrade, Hannah. I, in no particular order, I'm Managing Director of Advisor Advocacy. And in that role, I get to really pay attention to what's going on primarily in Washington, but uh, to some degree in the States as well. Uh, in terms of policymaking, uh, regulations and legislation that could impact fiduciary investment advisors and their clients. And in that role, I also work very closely with a lot of trade associations. We compare notes, we join voices uh, to amplify the voices of financial planners and investment advisors with policymakers, do a lot of joint work there. Uh, we do get to Washington handful of times a year to um, you know, speak with regulators and legislators about some of their, their thoughts and proposals and, and so on, and just really make sure that the, uh, the fragmented voices of financial planners, all these independent financial planners and investment advisors are heard uh, alongside some of the louder voices up in Washington. So, uh, and, th- and then we really make sure that uh, planners and advisors are aware of what's going on on these issues, what's being proposed, what's being thought about, and then we listen and uh, hear those voices. And you know, what do you think about these proposals? Are you excited? Are you angry? Are you frustrated? What are you? How do you think they could be made better? And then we take those voices back to Washington. So that's kind of role number one for me. And then my second role is as uh, leader of our retirement plan servicing business, which we do out of our trust company located in Denver. And in that role, we we service uh, retirement plans that investment advisors and financial planners are advising their business owner clients on. So they can just advise the business owner on uh, what kind of uh, funds to put on the menu and how to set up a plan and so on. And we do all the servicing behind the scenes for that. So those are my two roles with TD Ameritrade. So as an advisor advocacy, what are the big issues from an advocacy standpoint that are facing advisors today? Well, there are many. Uh, It just seems like the common theme that has run through this work, though, for more than a decade now has been the standard of care that financial 
service providers or financial advice providers are oh they're they're investor clients and so uh this will before your time hannah you but uh back in 2005 when the when the sec passed its uh so-called merrill lynch rule that would have allowed brokers to charge fees for advice without registering under the 40 act the fpa didn't think that was such a good idea and and uh brought suit against the sec and two years later that uh that rule was overturned uh the court said that uh the SEC had had uh, written a regulation that was in violation of the 40 Act. So it, that rule was overturned, and we kind of thought that might be the end of it, but we're still still debating that. We've gone through the whole Department of Labor conflict of interest rule that was uh, proposed and, and pulled back and reproposed and finalized and then tossed by a court, and now we have the SEC putting forth its best interest proposal for brokers. Uh, which uh, we think is a good thing. We think that investors deserve, uh, in some cases, a higher standard of care than their financial service providers are now held to. Uh, But we also think that brokers and advisors should be distinguished in the marketplace. Uh, They are two different business models. So that seems to be kind of the big one that we just keep dealing with uh, for years and years. Uh, Underneath that, there's a whole lot of other things around advisor examinations and the professionalization of the financial industry or profession. Um, a lot of things around uh, senior um, senior care now with respect to their financials and uh, a lot of other things that, that we're tracking all the time and, and working on all the time on, on behalf of planners, advisors, and their clients. You know, you talked about the uh, the FPA lawsuit against the SEC. And so for anybody who's listening who hasn't listened to the history of the SEC lawsuit, it is one of my favorite, personal favorite podcast episodes that we've done. So be sure we'll have that in the show notes. Um, so be sure to go back and listen to that. Um, and, you know, this issue of fiduciaries of big deal, especially for a lot of uh, people coming out of college programs, you know, they're kind of this expectation of fiduciary. Uh, Why, (laughs) maybe this is just stating the obvious, why is it so hard to pass a fiduciary rule right now? (laughs) It seems so logical, Uh, you know, so, so many people, it's just so normal that this should be the standard. Yeah, you're you're totally right there. And when uh, my my colleague Kate Healy uh, does a lot of work with uh, college students and professors and trying to develop those programs and support those programs, because we all know that planners are aging and we don't have enough new ones coming into the profession. So we we really uh, spend a lot of calories on that in trying to make sure there's a future to the industry. And one of the things that we hear from the younger planners, in, including planners-to-be, those who are in college today, is they want no part of coming into a sales culture. And when you talk about financial planning with them, their first reaction often is Wall Street. That's kind of what they think about in some of the movies that have been out there. Uh, but that's, as you know, not what financial planners do, and it's not how they they support their clients. It's more of a consultative advice-type engagement. Um, we believe there's room for both. Uh, I, I know there are circumstances where going to a, a broker who uh, gets paid on commission might be a better uh, a better avenue 
for someone then going to a, a full fee-based planner or fee-compensated planner. Uh, so we do think there's room for both on the landscape, but we think there should be a distinction in the eyes of the consumer. They should just go in with their eyes wide open on what am I getting for what I'm paying to each of these different providers. As far as your question about what is so hard, uh, I ask myself that question often. Uh, I, I was I was asked to take on this role in uh, it, the spring of 2007. I'm sorry, not 2007, 2010. And at that time, we were in the throes of the financial crisis, and Congress was debating what would eventually become the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. And I thought, well, this this work sounds interesting. And I accepted the assignment with the thought that uh, it'll probably keep me busy for a year or two. And here we are eight years later, and I've never been busier, uh, which is to your to your question about what is so hard. It just seems like there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of interest groups, a lot of uh, associations representing the various uh, stakeholders in financial services that each have their uh, their position and and uh, their their business models to protect and so on. And it just seems to make it very very difficult for an entity like the SEC or the DOL or Congress to come up with something that where we really I think should all have our eyes on the the consumer the uh, the clients, uh, first and foremost, but it doesn't seem to always work that way in Washington. So I wish I had a better answer for you, Hannah, as to why it's so hard, but uh, there are just a lot of people with a lot of vested interests. And it's not just with this issue, as we know, in Washington. That's that's kind of what brings things to a uh, a standstill there. You made the comment of, you know, it's really important for consumers to be able to tell the difference of knowing who they're, you know, walk, they're walking into an office, who they're dealing with. What, from your, from your position, how do we make that distinction for consumers? What does that look like from an advocacy perspective? Yeah, that's a great question too. So right now the SEC has this proposed best interest rule and they're trying to address that very question with this. Uh, one component of that rule is this uh, form uh, client, uh, CRS client uh, relationship summary, CRS, and they're they've put a template out there as a proposal, and they say it should be no more than four pages and some other constraints around it. And what they're trying to do is create a a fairly succinct disclosure document that whether you're sitting in front of a broker or an advisor or a dual registrant, one who wears both those hats, you know as the consumer what you're getting and, and where are the conflicts and how does that person get compensated for providing me advice and so on. Now, my understanding is from a lot of the SEC's town halls they're doing with investors around the country, and they've done, I think, eight or 10 of these so far, that they're getting a lot of feedback as they put this form in front of investors and investors are saying, I can't make heads or tails of this. Uh, so I really think we need to make it far simpler, uh, for a consumer to understand if you're looking for someone to provide you help and guidance with your financial life, uh, what am I, you know, what am I getting for what I pay? How does that professional person get paid for, for advising me? Where are their conflicts of interest? How will they deal with those conflicts of interest? It seems to me that should all, could all be put on a page or maybe two in, language that any consumer could understand, but we don't seem to be there yet. 
You know, I just think of the credit card companies, you know, now you can see on a one sheet exactly the interest rate that your credit card charges, you know, things of that nature. So that's sounds like what the SEC is trying to look for or trying to create. Yeah, yeah, I love that comparison. And that's a law that I think got put in a long time ago to help consumers understand these very kinds of questions. What am I getting? What am I paying? Uh, You know, if I carry a balance on my card, what's the interest rates, what's the late payments, all those things should be able to be disclosed, I think. Uh, I'm thinking about now, it just popped into my head, uh, the Committee for the Fiduciary Standard has uh, come up with, years ago, they came up with this fiduciary oath that's so simple uh, that any, you know, I think all fiduciary investment advisors should put this in front of their clients. And I don't have it in front of me, I can't recite it, but it's, it's, a real set of principles and commitments that that provider is is promising their client. And frankly, not all financial services providers are in a position to sign that in terms of some of the commitments made to uh, always be objective and only charge a fee for advice and so on. But it's, it's really a be- it's beautiful in its simplicity. It's one page long uh, with fairly large font too. Uh, yeah. Almost seems like that could be a model. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about, you know, earlier, you you said that there's a role for everybody. You know, there's a role for brokers. So is there a place for non-fiduciary actors in in the financial services space? I believe there is. Uh, That said, I also don't think that uh, whether you give one-time advice versus ongoing advice means you're a fiduciary or not a fiduciary. I think fiduciary advice can be given on a one-time basis. Uh, or more was more often the case, a planner will give that advice on an ongoing basis for the duration of the relationship. But I think about someone who has, uh, let's say a young person who has worked at their first job for a few years, and now they leave to go to another company, and they've got a, a 401k balance that they they don't know what to do with. And let's say they've got uh, you know $15,000 in their 401k. Uh, that person is is maybe not such a great candidate to hire a, a full service financial planner or investment advisor and pay an ongoing fee. Uh, the vast majority, I think, of planners and advisors wouldn't take that client. Um, but a lot of brokers, uh, especially at the uh, the independent brokerage firms, the IBDs, would take that client and would simply recommend, well, maybe you should take your fifteen thousand dollars, roll it into an IRA, and buy this mutual fund. You're young, you have a lot of time, just buy this growth mutual fund. And in return for that advice, if you do that, I get paid a commission. Uh, I do think there's room there for that. Uh, and that's just one example. So I do think there's scenarios where uh, a broker can be the best solution for a client and where ongoing uh, fee compensated advice maybe doesn't fit so well. So that's why I believe there is room on the landscape for both models, as long as the consumer understands what they're getting and what they're paying for. And so can you be a fiduciary and do a commission-based model? <laughs> That's an excellent question. And I think we could have a long <laughs> debate about that. Uh, and I think, you know, what the SEC is trying to do right now with its proposal is to say, well, in fact, the uh, chairman of the SEC, Jay Clayton, uh, said when he released the proposal in, I think it was April of this year, that he deliberately did not call it fiduciary. Uh, he didn't want, did not want to label brokers as fiduciaries because he wanted to make sure that 
there was a distinction between a fiduciary and advisor and a broker, but he does want brokers to uh, treat clients uh, with, with, with their best interest in mind, although I think that becomes pretty blurry. Um, brokers, you know, brokers and advisors both have conflicts. Um, so I sometimes hear people say that RAAs don't have conflicts of interest, and I just don't, don't see it that way. Uh, if you're getting paid on assets under management and your client comes to you and says, hey, I'm, I'm retiring and I'm thinking about taking some money out of my portfolio to pay off my mortgage so I don't carry a mortgage into retirement, what do you think I should do? The advisor has a conflict there uh, because if they advise the client to take that money out and pay down their mortgage, they are, uh, they're reducing the size of the portfolio and thus of their compensation. So there's a conflict there. Uh, what, what the fiduciary advisors don't have in terms of a conflict is, is they don't have the, I get paid more to recommend this investment product versus, versus this investment product. And, and that's the conflict that brokers do have, uh, that I think makes it very difficult to consider them a fiduciary. And I think even the brokerage industry, uh, we work with many in the brokerage industry as well, and they, they don't seem to... Uh, feel that they should be considered fiduciaries, uh, although they do seem to welcome some higher standard. So I think it's difficult for a broker to be considered a fiduciary because of that conflict. Uh, I know that point of view is not shared by all, though. So that point of view is mine. There's a lot of nuances in this in this conversation. There really is. It, it's uh, and that <laughs> maybe goes back to one of your prior questions about why is this so difficult is there is a lot of nuance. Uh, and I find that even on the planner advisor uh, side of these, these issues and debates, uh, you know, we have a lot of different trade associations in our space. We have, just to name a few, we have CFA Institute and FPA and NAPFA, and we have the Institute for the Fiduciary Standard and the Committee for the Fiduciary Standard and the Investment Advisor Association. And I'm sure I'm missing some. Uh, but I've been in a room with all of those folks, and we can't all agree on exactly, you know, what our positions should be in all cases on these issues. So, and that's even organizations and people who are representing investment advisors and financial planners. So, there is a lot of nuance, and I think there's a reason we have so many different organizations, uh, because even people who maybe mostly think alike on these issues might have some subtle differences that can show up when you have a, an actual proposal to, to react to. So there is a lot of nuance for sure. You're right. You know, one of the things that's been in the news is uh, regulating titles like brokers versus financial planners versus financial advisors. What is that conversation right now? And kind of where, where do you fall on that? I love that you asked that question uh, because I think that, goes kind of to the heart of a lot of the consumer confusion out there. I think most consumers feel that brokers and advisors are the same. Uh, They provide the same services, uh, which isn't uh, technically the case or isn't supposed to be by the laws. But uh, over the years, we've seen uh, brokers start to call themselves very similar terms to investment advisors like financial advisor or wealth manager or terms like this. Uh, back when the SEC passed its Merrill Lynch rule, it it stated in the rule that it had considered but declined to uh, put any guardrails around around titles because they said if we 
if we, we prescribe uh, certain titles that can't be used, we think that they'll just come up with other titles that sound kind of the same. So we declined to go there, uh, which I, I kind of understand, but I think it was it was unfortunate. I, I don't think we should say you can't use this or this or this title. I think we should just say, don't hold out as being an advisor uh, when you're not, when you're not registered as an investment advisor under the 40 Act. That's, uh, to answer your second question in terms of the stance, that's that's my stance. Again, I, I emphasize, I think there's room on the landscape for brokers and advisors, but let's not confuse the consumer by calling yourself an advisor when you're a broker. Now, back to your, your observation about nuance too, where this gets more difficult is with the dual registrants. We have many, many brokers who are also registered as investment advisors. And so they actually are investment advisors and can call themselves investment advisors. Uh, and imagine the confusion in the consumer's eyes who uh, is dealing with someone getting service from someone like this. Are you a broker or an advisor? Yes, uh, you're both. And the SEC is attempting to deal with this in this new proposal by saying if you're a broker, you can't call yourself an advisor, uh, but that doesn't apply to dual registrants because they are, in fact, advisors. And oh, by the way, a very high percentage of brokers are also registered as investment advisors. So I don't think this is really going to solve the problem. Uh, and we would urge the SEC to take a little broader view of, and not just make it about what title you call yourself, but are you holding out as an advisor when, in fact, you are a broker? So I, I think that it, I really appreciate you asking that question because I do think it's kind of at the heart of a lot of the consumer confusion. And we just, I don't feel we're on the cusp of having solved it. And, you know, the other topic as well is, you know, we're talking about investment advisors, um, but there's a whole area of financial planning that, you know, is much broader than just investments. How does that fit into all of this, this, this larger picture? You're absolutely right about that. And uh, we often find that policymakers are not clear on the distinction there. So if I'm an investment advisor, I may be advising you on your portfolio, maybe your retirement portfolio or your kids' college funds, what have you. Um, but that doesn't, I mean, as you point out, that's a slice of an overall financial planning engagement. Uh, and I could be a financial planner without being an investment advisor if I'm not handling the investments. Uh, as you know, I don't think there's a, a whole lot of those, but I, I know they do exist. That business model does exist out there. Uh, I also, in addition to the roles we talked about at the top of the, the podcast, I also uh, sit on the FPA board. And uh, along with that role, I sit on their uh, legislative and regulatory issues committee. And we are really working to try to, uh, and this has been a big objective of mine, and it was a big reason I wanted to be on the FPA board uh, a couple of years ago uh, when I first came on, is to try to get policymakers to recognize financial planning as a profession. So like doctors and lawyers and teachers and uh, professions like that, where you have to go through a uh, a certain set of uh, academic requirements. Uh, you have to pass tests. You have to uh, have continuing education and you're licensed to, to practice in your state or in all the states, what have you. 
and that people would really recognize that as a profession that I believe it is. Uh, I, I very much believe that financial planning is every bit as valuable as medicine or law is in our lives, maybe more so because it really impacts us throughout our entire life. Uh, so, yeah, back to the nuance. Uh, part of it is trying to educate policymakers that there's a difference between financial planners and investment advisors. Now, there may be a lot of overlap, but we are talking about two different things there. And then a, uh, a long-term effort to try to, to get financial planning recognized as a true profession, I think would be good for consumers and I think would be very good for the profession as well. So you talk about trying to recognize financial planning as a profession. For lack of a better question, what are the consequences of that? Like, why does that matter? I think it matters because uh, we, we go back to this title issue. So I can say that I provide financial planning services, let's say, but let's, but maybe I'm not a CFP. Um, I think that that can be a problem for consumers as well. Am I getting a certified financial planner? Um, how do I know that? Uh, I want to know that financial planning is to become a certified financial planner. There's a set of requirements, academic requirements, licensing, testing and licensing requirements, ongoing, continuing professional education requirements. It's like when I go to a doctor, I don't want to go to someone who has a sign outside of a building that says, I help you with your health. Uh, I want to go to a doctor, a medical doctor, an MD, because I want to know that they went to a lot of school. Uh, they've received extensive training uh, in licensing and testing and ongoing professional education. I want to have that confidence that all of those things bring to me that I'm getting a, a very competent uh, professional person in their field and not just someone who hung out a, a shingle that says I help people with their health. Uh, so I, I think that's why it's important to consumers. You talk about the importance of the profession. It's not for the planners or the advisors, it's important for the consumers. And I think that's a really important distinction. Yes. It, it's, it's, it's not about us. <laughs> it shouldn't be about us first and foremost. It really shouldn't. It should be about consumers and them getting competent, objective advice about something that's so important to their whole life, You know how their money helps them live their life and how they attain their goals. Uh, that's what it really should be about. And, and them having the confidence to know if someone has that CFP mark behind their name, that they've gone through a lot and continue to go through a lot to keep that, to have gotten that and to keep that. And so I, I should really feel good about going and, and asking that person for help. You know, this is where I think the nuances, you know, we've, we have the FPA Activate Facebook group that's, that's really active. And I know this has been a conversation on there of, you know, there's some really great people who don't have their CFPs that provide good advice to their clients. And there's, you know, and, and so it's not saying that if you don't have your CFP, you aren't qualified. It's, it's, this is about the consumer or does that make sense? Or what other thoughts would you have around that? Yeah, that, that's a great point. It's a very fair point that, and, and I have heard from, uh, I know there are people out there who are providing uh, excellent financial planning services and financial guidance to their clients, but they're not CFPs. So getting your CFP, you know, or, la or let's say not getting your CFP doesn't make you a bad planner. Uh, you can become a good one, but uh, I, I just think if we want to truly be recognized as a profession like doctors and lawyers and others, 
the consumer needs to know that there have been a number of hurdles that I had to step over, not easy ones either, to have gotten there and to have that CFP behind my name. And so that they can trust, uh, it's sort of that, you know, good housekeeping stamp of approval. If I have CFP behind my name, they know I've gone through a lot to get that. Now, that doesn't mean if I don't have my CFP that I'm incapable of providing those services, but I think the CFP should be, and and is to some degree today, should be a stamp of approval that I, maybe I don't have to do a whole lot of research or as much because I, I just know by that CFP, that registered trademark behind my name, that I have really uh, gone through a lot to attain that mark and to become a professional competent provider. So if you were to pull out your crystal ball, <laughs> do you think that we're going to see a fiduciary, an industry or profession-wide standard, a fiduciary standard in the next decade or two? I mean, or, 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 what would be your prediction on this? Yeah. So the only thing, uh, crystal balls are inherently cloudy. Um, ask everyone who, all of us who predicted the 2016 presidential election um, <laughs> incorrectly. Uh, so there, there does seem to be a lot of movement toward, there seems to be kind of a general agreement. And you hear it from brokers, you hear it from policymakers. Uh, that we need to raise the bar some in terms of the standards of care we are required to adhere to to provide our services to clients. We all know that we collectively as an industry fail uh, our clients too often, and that needs to change. Uh, So that's what a lot of these proposed rules are about. Um, We thought the Department of Labor rule Uh, was a good idea and would really have helped to raise the bar in an area where most of us have most of our money, uh, and that is in retirement accounts. Uh, That didn't make it through. Uh, The SEC is now trying to pick this up. Um, I, you know, if I had to predict, I would predict that the SEC uh, proposal in some form will get finalized in the next year or so. Um, I, I suspect they're going to probably repropose it. Uh, the comment period has ended about a month ago, and I'm sure they're spending a lot of time reading all those comments and, and will probably use that, those insights to help uh, improve their proposal and come out with another one maybe in a few months and maybe another comment period and maybe something gets finalized next year and maybe it's effective in 2020. Um, that's about as far as my crystal ball goes. Um, now it's, you know, the SEC does not have jurisdiction over insurance or banks. Uh, so you've got some holes there, just like you had holes with the DOL rule that it applied to all retirement accounts, but not non-retirement accounts or not, you know, non-tax qualified accounts. So none of these are perfect, but it does seem like there is long-term movement and sentiment toward raising the bar, which going back to starting this folk with the focus on the consumer, I think is a healthy thing. So I'm, I'm hopeful and I will say optimistic that in the next few years, the bar will get raised. So what are the other policy issues that you're following or working on right now? So uh, a big one seems to be the, uh, you know, the aging of America. And we have this huge baby boomer wave of which I am part 
that is aging into retirement and you're starting to see some, you know, as will happen to all of us at some point in our lives, probably some cognitive issues. And uh, unfortunately, uh, some seniors who experience that are more susceptible to uh, being uh, preyed upon uh, all too often by family members uh, or acquaintances or caregivers, but sometimes by strangers who uh, pitch them, you know, the next wonderful investment idea or just flat out steal their money. Uh, so there's a lot of movement in the regulatory bodies, in the states, in, uh, in Congress as well to, to put greater protections in place uh, for reporting potential malfeasance against seniors. Uh, so that's something we're very involved with at, um, at the federal level uh, as well as at, in the states. Uh, we're seeing a lot of states start to, uh, I, I would phrase it, take matters into their own hands with respect to this whole fiduciary issue. Uh, we're, we saw the state of Nevada pass a law last year uh, that all advice given to its uh, citizens in the state of Nevada must be done in a fiduciary manner. And uh, they extended that to brokers, insurance, RIAs, everybody. Um, we're seeing other states, we've seen proposals in other states' legislatures around that. Uh, we, we haven't seen any other states finalize that. Uh, so the states are saying, look, the Department of Labor rule didn't go through. The SEC is, is doing its thing. But uh, I think because of the visibility that this issue is getting now in the public, the states are starting to pick it up and say, hey, we're going to do something. And the states act a lot faster than the feds do. Uh, we're seeing bills passed on some of these issues sometimes in a matter of weeks where we're spending years debating them at the federal level. Um, there's the issue of, of financial planners and, you know, being a profession or holding out as a financial planner if you're not a certified financial planner, things like that. Uh, there's exams and oversight of planners and advisors. So there are a lot of issues that we track uh, at the federal and at the state levels, and uh, whether it's through my firm, TD Ameritrade, or working with some of the trade associations or my work uh, on the FPA board, uh, we engage on all those fronts, on all those issues on behalf of planners and advisors and their clients. You know, so for the planner or the new planner who's listening to this and is really interested in these topics, how can they get involved with this? Uh, I would really encourage them to get involved. Uh, number one, get involved with your association, uh, FPA, uh, or others. But uh, FPA has a legislative and regulatory issues committee. Some of the other uh, trade associations associations have similar uh, committees. If you get involved in those, uh, you'll get closer to the issues and get a better feel for some of the nuances uh, around some of these issues. I really strongly encourage people too to get in touch with your policymakers. Uh, the SEC had a comment period on its this best interest proposal um, that you could submit comments on. Uh, my organization hosts a page on our website where we we post uh, updates on issues. Uh, I, I run a Twitter account that almost daily we're posting, you know, the latest thinking or the latest proposals. Uh, we also publish uh, a blog on that. Uh, but I would also encourage people to get in touch with their elected representatives. 
And you don't have to, I understand, especially if you're young and you're starting out, you may not be able to get on a plane and go to Washington. Um, although a lot of these associations do uh, engagement days or advocacy days on the Hill that I would encourage people to join if you're able. But contact your elected representative and make an appointment to see them when they're in their district. I think they call it district time. They're not always in Washington. Uh, they, they do time in their districts and they get out and see their constituents and they will make time for you. So I really encourage advisors and planners to, to uh, call their office, their local office of their, their member of Congress or the Senate and ask to see them. And it's going to be a brief meeting. It's probably going to be a 30-minute meeting because they do a lot of meetings, uh, might even be less, and go see them when they're in your district, uh, when they're in their downtime or their off time from Washington, and uh, let them know your thoughts about some of these issues or pick their brain about uh, things they're working on in the financial arena. Uh, Again, we have a page on our website where you can just punch in your zip code and your elected representatives will come up, your member of Congress and your two senators and all of their uh, contact information. So not hard to do and uh, a good way to get involved at the grassroots level. I I talk to all these new planners or young planners and, you know, we want a seat at the table. And it's so cool hearing you talk about all this because it's like, hey, like there's an invitation for us to be talking to our policymakers, uh, an invitation to like have a voice. And we just, we just have to do it. That's right. You're, you're totally right. You just got to do it. And we, we really urge people, uh, regardless of their age, uh, to get involved in these issues. The one thing we've discovered a long time ago with financial planners and investment advisors is it's a very independent, fragmented group, industry. And when we view some of like the insurance uh, trade associations and the brokerage associations, they are very cohesive. They're very on message all the time. Uh, they can summon hundreds uh, of, of members to go to Washington, uh, typically once a year, uh, whereas it's, it's much harder for us to even get through to the, the many thousands of independent planners and advisors around the country and get them engaged. So um, would just love to see more engagement uh, from all ages, but especially the uh, newer planners to the industry. Get involved early and start to get an understanding and appreciation for the issues, form your own views, and then make sure those views are heard through the different channels that are available to you. Looking out on the landscape of you know financial services, what are the big trends that new planners need to be aware of from your perspective? What first comes to my mind is the whole, um, you know, technology and the digitization of, of a lot of things. Um, you know, different people make different predictions about the so-called robo-advisors and, you know, is that a threat to our profession or is it a, you know, a good thing, a benefit to our profession? Um, I think my views on that have evolved to where I think uh, a lot of these tools can be really great assets to a young planner. And we're seeing more surveys around young, younger consumers, let's say in their 20s and 30s. And you might assume that they want to get all of their financial planning guidance online just through digital tools. But in fact, what they, what they say through the surveys is, yes, they want digital access to their accounts and um, 
you know, maybe chat features with their, their advisor or their planner, but they want access to a human being too. And I think the digital tools can really support and help, help the, the human planner to scale their practice uh, by allowing people access to, you know, their financial plan online and even providing inputs to that plan online, checking the status of their financial life against their plan and, and how their investments are doing and so on. Uh, there's, there's a lot that can be done there. Uh, I do think there's a, there's a big gap in America between those who, who are in a position to afford to hire a financial planner and everybody else who really isn't, but they need the help just as much. Uh, the successful business person or doctor or uh, what have you who hires a financial planner, uh, that's great that they can afford a professional financial planner, but the person who's you know, not nearly of that means they need it every bit as much as the doctor does, uh, including younger consumers. And this term Henry's, you know, high earners, not rich yet. Uh, you know, I think about my own kids. I have three kids in their 20s and they could use financial planning help. They don't have any money, but they have jobs and they have student loans and, and uh, you know, they could use good advice on what's the best strategy to pay off my student loans versus maxing my 401k contributions or things like that. Uh, that doesn't fit neatly in an assets under management uh, business model. But this is one of the trends I see, you know, because a lot of clients of planners who do have money are later in life. And what happens when those folks start drawing down their accounts? What happens when those folks pass on? Uh, I would like to see us find ways to better serve uh, more of the masses, uh, including the younger folks who really don't have any assets that you can bill your services on. And I think digital tools can help with that. Um, and I think maybe different fee models can help with that. We're starting to see the emergence of uh, the more of a monthly subscription fee for access to a, a planner as opposed to an assets under management, because maybe I don't have any assets that you can manage. So these are, I've rambled here a bit, but uh, these are some of the trends that I see and, and I hope to see uh, in coming years that we can broaden our our ability to serve more Americans. You know, I often say, you know, where the financial services or financial planning landscape right now, it's it's like the Wild West for entrepreneurs. Like it's an entrepreneur's dream. There's so much to be had, you know, new business models to be explored and there's there's so much need. And we just need to figure out how to how to do it. Yeah, well said. And I, I would emphasize too, you know, figure out how to do it. Yes, but it shouldn't be a one size fits all. Um, you know, we've we've operated on this assets under management model for I don't know twenty or thirty years now, and you know, it planners tell me it works, and I, I have a an advisor, and it works for me. I like that model, but it doesn't work for everyone, and so I, I would just strongly encourage the. Uh, the young entrepreneurs, especially in the, the entrance, newer entrance of this field, to think about new ways of doing business and how can I make my services more broadly available to people and, and still make a living at it. On that note, what would be your advice to the person who is just entering the financial services or financial planning profession right now? Bob Veras wrote a really great book. I think he published it last year. And I read it and I thought, 
this book could be of great help to a, a, a new planner. It could be a great help to a very experienced planner. There's a lot of ideas in there about uh, different markets to serve and ways to go about that. So that, that would just be one of a lot of ideas. I think you, you need to decide, you know, am I going to join an established firm or am I going to try to make it on my own as an entrepreneur? I think the uh, the latter approach, the starting on your own as a brand new planner is a tough road. Um, and, you know, everybody's going to have a different set of circumstances uh, that they may or may not be able to take that approach. I think it could, I think it's uh, probably, probably for most, it would be wise to join an established firm uh, to learn the business uh, without getting too you know, set in your ways like this, this is the way it has to be done. Uh, but to learn the business uh, before maybe striking out on your own. Uh, I probably don't have to provide this advice to younger planners, but uh, be fearless about adopting technology that really serves your clients well and helps you scale your business. Uh, I really encourage people too to get involved in their associations like a NAPFA or an FPA. Uh, for example, and be actively engaged in those associations so that you start to start to leave your mark, uh, as well as learning a lot from people you're you're interacting with. Go to the conferences. I think these conferences are tremendous learning platforms uh, for for any stage planner, but especially if you're younger and uh, seeking to start out and, you know, learning more about the industry and meeting people in the industry and how do you do it and what works for you and what did you try that didn't work for you. Um, I'm a big, big believer in being a continuous lifelong learner. Uh, I went to college like most of us and I got later got a master's degree, but that by no means ended my educational pursuits. I feel like I'm always learning. I'm always reading I'm always listening to great podcasts like yours, going to trade uh, trade conferences and uh, learning what's what's evolving. I, I just encourage people, don't put your head down, but lift your head and, and see what's going on out there and just pick up ideas that you can adapt to your own way of doing business. Well, is there anything else, Skip, that you'd want to be sure new planners heard on this topic of advocacy or anything that we haven't covered today? Just a, I guess, a note of encouragement. I, I think it's a noble profession. I truly do. Uh, helping people, you know, live their best life and, and help helping them understand how they can use their, their money and their assets to live their best life, I think is a truly noble profession. And I, we need more of those. Um, you know, we have, I think, about 80,000 CFPs right now, which is nowhere near enough to serve America. In, in the hundred and some million American households. So it, it, uh, it's much needed uh, by our, our fellow citizens and our society uh, to make better decisions around their money and their life. And uh, in the process, uh, there's a shortage of them. So I think it can be really a great career. So I really encourage people to, to get into it and uh, really serve as many people as they can. How is your work connecting you to your purpose, your community, and your values? I'm Kate Healy, Managing Director of Generation Next at TD Ameritrade, and we believe that independent registered investment advisors have the power to impact the world in profound ways. If you've never considered being an RAA, it's time to take a look. 
There's no better way to put your skills and knowledge to work for the greater good of your clients, your community, and your own future. Find out more at tdainstitutional.com. If you want to be a part of great conversations like these, be sure to join the FPA Activate community on Facebook. It's a growing study group for financial planning professionals, from students to firm owners, professors, and FPA board members. You'll find them all there where you too can lend your voice. We hope you'll join us and help grow the financial planning profession. Thanks for listening. 